Well, please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8. This morning we'll be reading Genesis chapter 8, beginning in verse 1 to chapter 9, verse 17. So Genesis chapter 8, verse 1 to chapter 9, verse 17. Now remember that as we read uh, this scripture passage, the, the reading of scripture is not merely a necessary prelude to the sermon. This is a means of grace in itself. Paul tells Titus or Timothy, excuse me, to devote himself to the public reading of scripture. And so this is an element of worship in and of itself that God desires to nourish us with. So Genesis chapter 8, beginning in verse 1 through chapter 9, verse 17. Please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word given to us this morning. <clears throat> but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. In the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot. And she returned to him, to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the six hundred and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried up from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth had dried out, then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. 
Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. And you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Well, we live in a time in which the church has the least amount of uh, cultural influence since really the dawn of its existence. Uh, we live in a secular age. And how should we respond to this age? How should we respond to this world that we find ourselves in? One possible response is to long for a renewed theocracy, a blend of church and state that existed in the West for almost 1,500 years. Another response is to cut ourselves off from secular society and culture and just hunker down in our own Christian communities and, and ghettos. Well, these, this passage before us, these chapters in Genesis, are calling us to respond 
by embracing and living in light of this covenant that God makes with Noah here at the end of Genesis chapter 8 and Genesis chapter 9. Now you may remember back in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve sinned, God came to Adam and Eve both in judgment and in grace. And God made two distinct promises of grace to our first parents. God promised, made a promise of redemptive grace. Redemptive in the sense that God promised to redeem Adam and Eve out of this sin-cursed world and to grant them the right to his seventh-day Sabbath rest. We see this in Genesis 3.15, where the seed of the woman is promised to crush the head of the serpent. Well, God also made other promises. He made promises to preserve humanity's life in this sin-cursed world. God promised to preserve the institution of marriage. God promised to preserve procreation. God promised to preserve our effectiveness in our work and common vocations. Well, these two distinct promises, promises of redemptive grace, promises of common or preserving grace, find covenantal foundations here in Genesis 6 through 9. Now, you may remember last week, God made another covenant with Noah in Genesis 6.18. In Genesis 6.18, God promised to save Noah and his family through the waters of judgment. This is a covenant of redemptive grace. It's unpacking that promise of Genesis 3.15. But now, in Genesis 8 and 9, God is making a, another covenant with Noah that's distinct from that covenant that he made in Genesis 6. And this covenant is a covenant of, of common, preserving grace. God is promising to preserve the life of humanity within this fallen world. Here, God is pulling upon those threads of the promises that he made in Genesis 3 in relation to marriage and procreation and our work. And so God does rule over all things. Abraham Kuyper once said that there is not one square inch on planet Earth of which Christ does not say mine. And this is an important reality that we are to embrace. However, God does not rule all things in the same way. God rules the church in a way that's distinct from how he rules society and culture. And so where should we go in the Bible if we want to learn how God rules the church? Well, we should look at the redemptive covenants that he makes. Genesis 3.15, the first covenant with Noah, Abraham, David, Moses, and the new covenant. If we want to know how God rules civil society, if we, if we want to know what God's plan or vision is for society, we should look to this covenant that God makes with Noah in Genesis 8 and 9. So it's this covenant that I want us to spend some time reflecting upon this morning. And we'll be reflecting upon this covenant through that question. The question of what is God's plan? What is his vision for society? What is God's plan? What is his vision for society? Well, first you'll notice that God's plan or vision for society includes all of creation. His plan, his vision for society includes all of creation. Notice what we read in Genesis 9, verses 9 through 10. God tells Noah, Behold, I establish my covenant with you 
and your offspring after you and every living creature that is with you. So this covenant is a covenant that's not just made with Noah and his family, but it's made with every living creature on the face of the earth. But more than that, in verse 13, God says that he is making this covenant with the earth. So this is a covenant that not only includes every living creature, but it also includes all of creation. So the reason why we call this a common grace covenant is because it's a covenant that God does not make with a particular demographic of people, but it's common. It's with all of creation. Notice how this contrasts with the redemptive covenants that we see in Scripture. In Genesis 6, God didn't make a covenant with every family on the face of the earth, but with Noah and his family. In a few chapters from now, we'll consider how God makes a covenant with Abraham. God didn't make a covenant with every uh, male on the face of the earth, but with Abraham. God didn't make a covenant with every nation on the planet, but with Israel and so on and so forth. Redemptive covenants of Scripture are particular. They're made with particular individuals or particular people, but this covenant is common. It's with all of creation. And notice further that there is no religious requirement to participate in this covenant. This covenant is made with every creature regardless of their religious affiliation. This is the ground for religious liberty, civil religious liberty. Now, of course, uh, we don't have religious liberty before God. Uh, no one can, will be able to approach God in judgment, say, in, uh, judgment Day and say, well, God, you, know, you gave me liberty to believe whatever I want to believe and worship however I want, wanted to worship. However, based on the terms of this covenant, we do have liberty from other people in society, from governments, not to lord it over our conscience and how we desire to worship or what we believe. Again, there's no religious requirement to participate in this common covenant. So what is God's plan? What's his vision for society? Well, first of all, it includes all of creation, every living creature on the face of the earth. Well, God's plan, his vision for Society also includes a promise, a promise not of redemption, not of taking us out of this world, not of giving us an inheritance in the new creation, but this covenant includes a promise of preservation, preservation in this present creation. So God's plan for society is to preserve creation. Again, look, at, uh, look with me at the end of chapter 8. In verses 21 through 22, we read, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. God here is promising to suspend his just judgment against sin and preserve this creation, preserve the order of this world. While the earth remains, the seasons will come and go. God is promising to preserve this creation. And so the reason why we call this covenant not only a common grace covenant, but also a um, uh, 
a covenant of preserving grace is that God is promising to preserve, not to redeem, but to preserve life within this present creation. Now, ordinarily, when God makes covenants with his people, he also enjoins signs to those covenants so that we might remember those covenants and so that God might remember um, his covenant. And so what sign does God enjoin to this covenant? Well, God puts his bow, his war bow, in the sky. This is the sign of this Noahic covenant. In Genesis chapter 9, the sign isn't so much for us, but in an anthropomorphic sense, it's for God. When God looks upon the bow in the sky, he will remember his promise. He will remember this covenant. Now, throughout scripture, the war bow is a metaphor for God's just judgment. So, for instance, in Psalm 7, listen to what the psalmist says. If man does not repent... God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. So the bow is a symbol of God's judgment against sin. <clears throat> so when you look at the rainbow, the war bow in the sky, it's not drawn taut facing this creation. Rather, it's pointed away from this creation. Indeed, it almost looks like it's, as if it's been laid aside. It's not in use. Thus, the rainbow is meant to remind us that God is suspending his just judgment. He is not taking up his war bow against creation. He's preserving creation. He's exercising forbearance towards sinful humanity. However, this forbearance will run out. God has appointed a judgment day, a day in which his judgment will no longer be suspended, but he will pour out his wrath and fury, not through water, but through fire. Which is why we read in Revelation chapter 4, uh, John saying, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So it's who's seated on the throne? Well, Christ, the Lamb of God, the ruler of the nations. And so we see here that Christ has the authority to pick up and wield God's war bow. And Christ, on Judgment Day, will turn, redirect that bow, which has been uh, pointed away from humanity, and will draw it taut towards creation and humanity. And so we see here that God is promising to preserve Preserve uh, this creation. Preserve the rhythms and structure of this world. Well, what are, what are God's expectations for humanity, for his image bearers in this life? Well, we see the commission that God gives to his image bearers in the first seven verses of chapter 9. So first we see that... Um, God is reissuing this call to be fruitful and multiply. So again, you'll notice a lot of similarities here between the original creation mandate. So at the beginning of chapter 9, God tells Noah to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. This touches upon the institutions of marriage and the family. God is saying that it's really important for the good of society that people get married and raise kids within the context of marriage. Well, second, you'll notice that God tells Noah that he is giving plants and animals to Noah and the rest of humanity for food. 
Now, of course, in, in the ancient world, plants and animals didn't just magically appear on one's plate as a hot meal. Mankind had to do a lot of work as hunters, gatherers, and farmers in order to turn plants and animals into food, food for families. In fact, think of Genesis chapter 3. How did God curse Adam's work? Well, he cursed the produce of the ground. In the ancient world, man's work was very much tied up to providing for the material needs of a growing society. And so this call, or this, this, this commission that God says where he is giving plants and animals to man for food is really touching upon mankind's call to work. God is saying here that it's really important that his image bearers work, and they work for a distinct purpose, to provide for the growing needs of a community or of a society. So this touches upon really any institution that exists to provide for the needs of a society. Think of your vocations. I would assume that everybody in their common vocations uh, does something that seeks to provide a good, a service, or a product for the benefit of our community, of our society. And so God is saying our work is really important. Well, last of all, you'll notice that God also calls his image bearers to pursue justice, to pursue strict, retributive, and punitive ju uh, justice. He says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for man was created in the image of God. Because man bears the image of God, man has a unique calling and qualification to exercise this kind of justice. So God is calling man to pursue justice. What institution does this touch upon? Well, this touches upon the institution of civil government. When Paul in Romans chapter 13 is speaking about how the civil magistrate has been appointed by God, and in the original context, he's speaking about Nero, and he says that the civil magistrate has been appointed by God to specifically bear the sword against the evildoer, Paul has this part of the Noahic covenant in mind. The civil magistrate receives his uh, theological or divine appointment through God's covenant with Noah here in Genesis 8 and 9. And so God commissions mankind to get married, to procreate, to work, to provide for the needs of a society and to pursue justice. Now, I'd like to connect this to the previous point. So again, God makes a very specific promise in this covenant to preserve creation. Well, how? How will God and how does God preserve society and creation? Well, God specifically preserves this present world through the preservation of this threefold commission. I mean, think about how, how has the world been preserved since the days of Noah? Well, God has preserved the natural family so that we can still procreate as a species. God preserves this commission to work so that our needs as a, a society can be met. And God pursues at least a semblance of justice so that we do not snuff ourselves out as a race. So how does God preserve this society and this creation? By preserving this threefold commission. While the earth remains, we can have full confidence that God will preserve these institutions. That society will never get so bad that these institutions cease to exist. This is the confidence that we can have based on these covenantal promises that God is making with Noah. And notice how this justice, this strict justice contrasts with church discipline. 
Church discipline is not punitive. It's not retributive. Rather, it's restorative. It's Jesus leaving the 99 to go after the one erring member. And once repentance is, 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 happens, then there is no punishment. There are no consequences to bear. And so there's a stark contrast between this justice that my, mankind is to pursue in civil society and the discipline that's, that's supposed to be enacted within the church. And so what's God's plan? What's his vision for society? Well, it's not to create a morally neutral place in society, nor is it to create a renewed theocracy or to make our country Christian or establish Christian nation states. Rather, God's plan and vision for society is to preserve creation by preserving this threefold commission, by preserving the natural family, preserving our God-given ability to work and pres uh, pre uh, preserving justice. Now, this may seem kind of weak, like we would want more. But again, we have to be content with what God's word says. Now, why? Why does God preserve creation? Why did God make this covenant with Noah? What's, what's the grand purpose behind this preservation? Well, God seeks to preserve creation for the purpose of creating a forum whereby God can build his church. So God desires to preserve creation in order to create a forum whereby God can continue to build his church. I made this point uh, a number of weeks ago in Genesis chapter 3. But these redemptive covenants are built upon the foundation of this covenant that God makes with Noah in Genesis 8 and 9. Or to put it another way, how does God build his church? Well, he builds his church specifically upon the foundation of this covenant of preservation. I mean, how is Christ going to be born from the context of, of Genesis? Well, through God preserving the natural family. Think about our own day and age. How does God build his church? Through the ministry of the word and the sacraments. What is the word of God? Well, it comes to us in ordinary languages. Originally in Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, which are very ordinary languages. And for those of us who don't read the original languages, English, which is an ordinary language. The only reason why we have languages and we can communicate with one another intelligibly is because of God's common and preserving grace based on the terms of this covenant. The sacraments, what are the sacraments? Well, the administration of ordinary water, bread, and wine. Bread and wine are produced because people work and produce these things and we are able to benefit them, benefit from them in the context of the church. How is the church supported? Well, Paul's very clear in the New Testament. It's through people working and giving a portion of their, of their income to the church. God builds his church upon the foundation of this covenant that he made with Noah. And so every time you witness a new day, every time you witness the changing of another season or God's bow in the sky, you can be assured that God's just judgment against this creation is being suspended. You can be assured that God is preserving this creation, will continue to preserve this creation, and you can be assured that God is still in the business of saving sinners and building his kingdom. At the very moment in which the last elect person is saved, that is the moment in which God's just judgment will be unleashed and final judgment will occur. This covenant with Noah remains while the earth persists, while there's still kingdom work to be done. But once that last elect sinner is saved, then the terms of this covenant with Noah will run out and 
God's new creation will be issue, issued forth. And so again, every time you witness a new day, you can be assured that there's still people that need to be saved and still more of God's kingdom that needs to be built. And so yes, we should give thanks. Give thanks for the church. Give thanks for the word of God through which we hear of the gospel, that our sins are forgiven uh, for the sake of Christ's blood and that the imputed and alien righteousness of Christ is granted to us. We should give thanks that we are, our faith is built up and nourished through the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism, but we also should give thanks for this covenant that God made with Noah. Because apart from this covenant, God would not be able to build his church through the ministry of the word and the sacraments. Well, at the beginning, I, I asked you, how should we respond? How should we respond to the secular age, the world that we find ourselves in? Well, we should trust God. Trust God and his promises. His promises of preservation and his promises of redemption. Christ will continue to build his church, even though the gates of hell will try to do everything they can to stop that. He builds his church upon the foundation, the footing of Genesis 8 and 9. In a few moments, we will be able to partake of the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper, in contrast to the covenant sign of the Noahic covenant, the rainbow, is not a sign and seal of God suspending his judgment, but rather it's a sign and seal that God's just judgment has been satisfied satisfied through the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And consequently, this is not a meal for all image bearers. It's for those who repent and believe in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray.